Mara mentioned, really the reason for this talk tonight is, um, in a way, a recognition of the fact that that pamphlet that I wrote on Americanism is not really enough because of the fact that there are, there are about seven or eight different arguments that are in there that um, all of which have to be treated separately in greater detail in order to make the whole point clear what it is that I'm driving at. And the reason for scheduling a talk entitled Calvinism and Americanism or Calvinism in the background of the Americanist heresy is simply to focus on one of these major points and how Calvinism, this, this uh, form of Protestantism, had such an enormous impact on the entire building of uh, the American nation and then how this, therefore, has contributed to the growth of this particular heresy. And really, I suppose, the reason, another reason why um, we wanted to dwell on uh, Americanism uh, in, well, forums such as these and then providing tapes for Keep the Faith as a result is to clear up, uh, in, by examining things in greater depth, certain misconceptions that people might um, get. I've heard arguments myself um, from friends of mine that I've given the pamphlet to, um, clear up certain misconceptions so that they don't uh, take certain things that are expressed there in a way that they ought not to. I have a friend, for example, a colleague of mine, who gave this pamphlet to his wife, and his wife read the first page and said, I was a communist, and then threw it down. And the reason was simply, again, because of this criticism of certain aspects of American society. And I'd like to begin with that by simply once more defining what it is that I mean when I'm talking about Americanism. Right? When I'm talking about Americanism, I am in no way condemning patriotism. I'm making a distinction between patriotism and Americanism. And by Americanism, I mean this religion of the United States, uh, something which transforms the United States from a nation to which uh, uh, people are, or for, for which people owe obligations, to which people have duties, and therefore are obliged sometimes to fight and sometimes to die. The transformation of this from a nation into a religion. And any time you transfer one thing into another, you have difficulties. Uh, we always have, we have sociologists who are constantly talking like philosophers. We have um, sometimes historians who are theologians, theologians who want to be biologists. And if you insist that families are not families but political parties, and that political parties are not political parties but, um, but oh, I don't know, tribes or something or other, and that countries, nations, are not nations but universal religious ideas or universal principles, you've got a problem. And that's what I'm trying to make as a major point with regard to Americanism. That in a sense there's three dangerous things that stem from this transformation of the United States into a, uh, into a, a kind of a religion, a kind of an eighth sacrament, um, a kind of a gospel whose message is good for the entire world. And these three bad consequences are that if you do this, one thing that you do is you hurt true religion. That it is not the United States and the American way of life and American society, which is the central point in history or uh, the cause of salvation. That is Christ's birth, death, and resurrection and um, the Catholic Church, which are the center of history and then the means of salvation. Um, it is not good for patriotism because what it does is, again, it takes your attention away from the fact that you have a home 
that is a limited thing, that is uh, something that is small in area and has certain quite different self-interests and obligations from other people's homes and other people's obligations and self-interests. And that, again, it's this very limited character of your nation and its distinction and its inability to be universal that requires you to mark it off from others and die for it at times as the cradle that gave you protection and, um, and um, affection in a sense and a language and all kinds of other things as you, as you grow and you live. And then also this Americanism, because of the content, the specific content of this religion of the United States that's developed, um, hurts the whole idea of what a good government is. All right, so that my whole problem with Americanism, with this transformation of the United States from being a nation into a universal principle, religious, philosophical, whatever you want to call it in character, good for everybody, is that it's bad for religion, it's bad for patriotism, and it's bad because of its specific content for government as such. You could transform, for example, obviously, obviously uh, other people in history at given times have, in a sense, tried to transform their countries into principles that were uh, greater for the, the, the world as a whole. And, um, and in doing so, you have some of the similar problems here, but sometimes you do not have the same consequences for um, the nature of the way you govern your people. And it's again going to be the specific character of this religion of the United States that's going to make that third uh, point of mine uh, go astray in the way that it does. Now, having said that, that the problem that the, the problem with Americanism is that it turns the United States away from being a nation and into being a universal principle for everyone. Uh, having said that, uh, I ought to indicate again, as the pamphlet makes clear, that there's many causes for this. And in that pamphlet in particular, I signified two causes, the, the odd way in which the English background of the United States plays in with uh, this odd way in which Protestantism affects the United States. That in a sense, uh, you can't really extract Calvinism or extract, uh, as I would do maybe in another lecture sometime, the English background of the United States and presume that by studying them in laboratory form, each on their own, that you'll understand how this problem of Americanism developed. You have to, in a way, look at both and then throw them together and show the oddities of the way in which they contrasted and, and, and uh, combined with one another to understand the whole problem. But it is helpful, again, it's, it's crucial, to look at each of these factors on its own as a beginning. Okay, and again, it's this idea of, of looking at them each on their own as a beginning to understanding the whole problem that I think may, may help to build up a proper conception of this whole, um, whole, whole problem as, um, in its entirety. All right, so that having said what Americanism is, uh, a religion, transformation to a religion rather than being a nation, and having indicated there are many causes that combine, and two in particular, to make it, Let's just take a look at this whole problem of Calvinism. And again, it may be useful if we start off by, by just a, a little, very brief sketch of what Calvinism, um, in a way, as a historical phenomenon is. 
Because although we're always aware, because we see it all around us everywhere we go, that Protestantism has so many different forms to it, nevertheless, uh, oftentimes they all, they all seem to merge. And when you have uh, these specific terms, uh, uh, Calvinism, uh, Evangelical or Lutheran Protestantism, or then uh, in England you hear of the dissenting churches in one form or another, it often gets lost in the wash, and uh, we lose track of what exactly it means. I gave a lecture about a year ago in which I tried to demonstrate that insofar as a Christian uh, a Christian denomination is really Protestant in character. And nowadays, because uh, Catholics don't know what Catholicism is and Protestants don't know what Protestantism is, um, many Protestants or so-called Protestants are not really even Protestants in a historical sense because they don't even know any longer. I think I've told you, or I may have told uh, in one lecture, that I, I have a good friend who's a, um, a Baptist. And this one said to me one time that we had to get back to the essentials from Aquinas before we would be able to deal with anything. And uh, the fact that Aquinas had nothing to do with, um, with uh, Anabaptism uh, as, a, as a religion didn't seem to bother him because he never even investigated this uh, any longer. He just heard the name, I think, and sounded good to him. And of course, this fellow had also, he'd been taking courses from a Jesuit who had uh, been telling him that there was no such thing as the resurrection so that, as a consequence, he certainly could not look to Catholicism as a means of providing him any kind of Orthodox Christianity. But insofar as you're talking about Protestantism as it really existed as a historical phenomenon, I pointed out in this lecture last year that there is this one central doctrine of Protestantism as such from which everything else flows. And it is this doctrine of, the, of, of, of human beings after original sin, being absolutely and totally and completely depraved. That after original sin, there's not a glimmer of, of, of possible goodness in a human being, unlike the Catholic uh, conception of things, which presumed that even under original sin, a human being still had something in him that was capable of being, of being taken up and, and saved, and this leads Protestantism into a completely different understanding of salvation from Catholicism. Because as Luther said, and again, um, when one quotes Luther, one often has to revert to vulgarities because he uses them all the time. Um, Luther says that when you're saved, it's not a question of, of let's say, again, uh, reverting to Catholicism. It's not a question of you being transformed in Christ. It's not a question of of, of, of becoming white as snow so that one can appear before the, um, the, the, the face of God. And obviously, therefore, there's no sense, um, since you're not going to be transformed, white as snow appearing before God, there's no sense to have something such as, well, Dante gives the name of purgatory too. Um, there's no need for this purgatory because you cannot be washed. Uh, you are as totally depraved, Luther says, and corrupted if you're saved by Christ, um, you're as totally depraved in heaven as you were down here on earth before Christ came. What Luther says, and what all Protestants who are really connected uh, with the original movement have argued, what, the, what they really say, and again I'm reverting to Luther's words here, is that human being is like a, a, a manure heap. Um, he says a human being is dung. 
And all that happens with salvation is that God, through Christ, decides to, in a way, throw a cover over the dung. So that when you're in heaven, you are in there as a pile of manure. You're a a heap of manure, but you are, in a way, cloaked by Christ. But inside, you're as rotted as you were beforehand. Right? Hence, no need for things like purgatory, no need for good works, no need for ascetic practices, no need for anything to transform the individual. He can't be transformed. Now then, in conjunction with that as well, of course, is this fideism of Protestants, this idea of faith alone being the only means of salvation. All right? Obviously, again, for Catholics... Faith is a prerequisite for salvation so that we too can say that um, we are saved by faith, but we are saved by a faith that understands that there are all these other things connected with it that require us to be washed ultimately as white as snow before we can appear in God's sight. But for Protestantism, it's not that at all. It's a simple faith that Christ will throw this blanket over us. And in throwing this blanket over us through absolutely no merits of our own, even in Christ, in other words, we say that it's through no merits of our own in a fundamental sense, in that um, without Christ's action, we could never have been put on the pathway towards contributing to our own salvation. But for a Protestant, for a Protestant, ultimately, there is no way in any sense that one contributes to his salvation, one simply has faith that the blanket will be thrown over the manure heap. All right? And till the very end of time, every individual who makes it into the sight of God makes it in there almost in a sense with God holding his nose. All right? And, and agreeing, so to speak, to overlook how miserable his dinner guests are. All right? This is a, a tremendous distinction then with all forms of Protestantism that are really Protestantism. Now, again, at the present time, if you, if you ask many Protestants, do you believe human beings are totally corrupted, um, they won't know what you're talking about. And if you claim, if you tell them that this is what Luther said, they won't believe you. And if you tell them that this is what uh, every serious Protestant thinker in the 16th and 17th century argued, again, they won't believe you. They don't know. So imagine if, uh, for example, Luther had any insight into what was going on now, um, he'd be, in a sense, horrified because Protestantism, um, to a large degree, at least as far as consciously knowing what its roots are, is a, is a kind of a failure. There are a few people, serious people, who do understand this um, and still accept it, but they are not that many in the whole Protestant camp. Now, just again in conjunction with this, what is Calvinism then? Well, Calvinism is really the most militant, or was really the most militant, important form of Protestantism. Because Luther himself and Lutheranism, or evangelical Christianity as the Lutherans prefer to uh, call um, their, their, their form of, of Christianity, um, Lutheranism is not really thought out in any logical way. And when you look at Luther historically, you get this impression of Luther backing into a lot of the positions that he takes in debates and as the historical problem develops uh, vis-a-vis Rome, but without realizing the consequences of a lot of the arguments that he made when he first started out in his debate uh, with um, the Dominicans and then uh, with, with Rome. But John Calvin, being a Frenchman, and the Frenchman being notoriously logical, 
in, in, their, in their, their thinking to the point of being illogical in their behavior. Um, uh, Frenchmen can't stand uh, whenever they look around them and they see that things are not cleaned up in the sense of being a little bit, being fuzzy. So that Frenchmen, wherever they have been in history, as soon as they come into a room to discuss things, as soon as an idea pops into a picture, the Frenchmen in a way sharpen their knives. And first what they do is they cut off a lot of the fluff and clean out a lot of the excess and throw the garbage out of the argument. And then, of course, once they're done with that and they've got their argument clear-cut and straightforward and logical and connected point one with point one thousand, they then take the sharpened knives out and they stab whoever disagrees with them. Um, and this happens, um, uh, France has always been in a sense like this, it makes being part, it makes being an intellectual in France an extremely unpleasant thing. In one sense, it's nice because you go there and you see that people take arguments seriously. In another, it's irritating because you go there and there's often no charity involved um, in debates one person with the next. But what happened was this man, John Calvin, who was a Frenchman from Normandy, who was a lawyer, and that's another explanation for why lo how logical this thing was, um, John Calvin, who was a lawyer who was destined for a career in the church, already had a position as a canon of a cathedral um, outlined for him. John Calvin cleaned up the whole Protestant view and showed how this total depravity or total corruption argument was connected with practically everything else including believing faith alone, believing in the Bible alone, because obviously you looked at the tradition of the Catholic Church, you could not see this doctrine taught, but if you could somehow latch on to the Bible and interpret it in your sense, you might be able to make a case for it. He showed how this total depravity thing was logically connected with a hundred other steps, and because it was so logical and so well thought out and so rigorous, and avoided a lot of the bumbling um, confusions that Lutheranism got involved in very early on. You might know that Luther got into some difficulties very early on, started at one given moment legitimized bigamy for one political man because, political man because he was uh, one of his defenders, got heavily tied in with, having to, uh, with teaching his followers that they must obey the state in every regard because uh, he needed the state as, as protectors. And Lutheranism got a bad uh, image fairly early on in Protestantism and became limited to sections of Germany and to sections of Scandinavia where kings could introduce it by fiat uh, without, without um, uh, debate. And John Calvin's more rigorous, more logical, more independent, as it was independent, Christianity or Protestantism, became um, more interesting for people. And John Calvin's headquarters, which ultimately brought him to Geneva in Switzerland, Geneva became the center uh, for uh, his spreading his ideas outward, Geneva, in a sense, was the Moscow of the 16th century. That from Geneva outward extended tentacles for an international movement of Protestantism. And Geneva became the city to which exiles from various countries, when they had difficulties, fled um, in order to, to drink Protestantism from uh, its, its real pure source. Now, because of this, Calvinism, what you call Calvinism, has got different names in different countries. Uh, it's got different names depending upon 
certain aspects of what Calvin taught being focused upon by people in given countries uh, where it penetrated um, to make the distinction between, let's say, the Catholics or other forms of Protestantism or particular issues about Catholicism that were heated uh, in the day in the country that Calvinism penetrated. So that wherever you go, you find oftentimes Calvinism not called Calvinism, but by a different name. Um, in, in Switzerland and other places, you'll see it referred to as Reformed Christianity. Um, in other places, you'll see it referred to as Presbyterianism all right, or Congregationalism. Um, and, of course, because, because in England, in England, uh, in Scotland, it was called Presbyterianism or Congregationalism, but in England, in, within Great Britain, because these representatives of Calvinism did not think that the Church of England was really Protestant, they therefore uh, gathered up this name Puritan because they indicated that Protestantism in England had to be purified with the spring water of Geneva in order to really fit in with this logical, rigorous argument that would connect it back to the idea of total depravity. Now, it's only if you have this idea of total depravity that you can have these other Protestant notions of salvation by faith alone, and then ultimately, really, um, this, this insistence on the Bible as the only source of truth, as I'll show here in a minute. All right, now, from our standpoint, of course, all of this has been meant to indicate that from Protestantism, you get Calvinism. From Calvinism, you get these various names for Calvinism, among which are the Puritans as a name. And, of course, it's the Puritans that are important for our country. So that when we talk about this doctrine of total depravity and all of its consequences, it's translated through the Puritan experience coming from England into the United States. And it's this now that I want to focus on for a few minutes. Because in one sense, there are aspects of Puritan Calvinism which are, are common to all kinds of, of, of Protestant Calvinist religions wherever they appear. And then there's a unique aspect to it which is proper only to the Puritans who come here to the United States. So let's look at both of these things for a minute. And when I'm done with that, we'll have, in a sense, got a vision of what Puritanism will mean for the United States, for America. And then we can move on to see how it then gets transformed into this whole problem of Americanism. All right, now let me just look through the Puritans at two consequences of this total depravity doctrine. And I could, again, I could pick out a hundred of these, but there's no sense doing it um, if you're trying to fit things into a, 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 an hour lecture. Reminds me, you know, I had, a, I had a supervisor when I was doing my doctoral work, and this man uh, was a historian of the Romantic period in history. And one of the things about the Romantics in the 19th century is they were interested in everything, um, everything that you can think of. And because of this, they often never got anything finished. Um, you know that there's a, a piece of music called the Unfinished Symphony, written by a romantic composer. This is not uncommon for romantics. And my supervisor, who was himself a kind of a romantic, wanted to write this book on the romantics. And he collected so much information because he was interested in everything, he never got it done. And finally they told him, look, you've got to finish it in 150 pages so the consequence was it's like, it's, reading, it's like reading a laundry list or a, or, or a shopping list. 
and you don't get any information about any of these people. Whereas if you pick just a couple of examples out, you get a clue as to, you would get a clue as to what the rest of them thought. And that's what I'm doing about this total depravity idea as it comes down through Puritan, Calvinist, Protestants. All right, now there's two points about this I want to mention. One is this, and you can probably, you're going to see this very clearly. Once, once you argue that every human being is utterly and completely depraved after original sin, and that it's only faith that can possibly give you um, this blanket thrown over the manure that you really are uh, to get into the sight of God, it, it becomes automatically clear to uh, these people that institutions like the church are valueless. And that's the first consequence of all forms of serious Protestantism. That when you even hear the word church in the Protestant context, that it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a sort of a... It's a sort of a, um, um, you know, when we use the term, you say that we've, you've got a house but not a home. That um, you might have a structure, you might have a building in which people go into it, and they might use it uh, 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 for, for purposes that seem to be like we would use it for, only because of memories of what it used to be in the past or whatever. But it's not the same thing. It doesn't, it doesn't intrinsically enter into what you're doing. That the idea of a church with sacraments, with bishops, with priests, with, with all of the things, with sacramentals, with everything that you can think of, with spiritual writings, none of this has any significance. Because none of it can make you white as snow. You cannot be made white as snow. There's no sense in having sacramental theology. There's no sense in having any of these notions. There is no purification process. There's just me throwing myself on God's mercy. And, and therefore, what you've got to do is you've got to make it clear that it's only you and God. It's only the individual Christian, well, scum, really, because that's the terminology that you would use. The, only, the, the, the individual piece of dung and Christ. All right, so I throw myself on Christ's mercy and that's it. We've explained, in a sense... Uh, the, the entire process of salvation there. So that one of the main consequences of Protestantism is what oftentimes you hear referred to in many, many uh, ways in philosophy and political ideas and all kinds of things as atomism. That it reduces you to an atom. That it shows that you are in no way connected with other people for your ultimate um, uh, meaning in life that, yes, you have connections with people, obviously, for one thing or another, but it's not intrinsically important to your whole destiny. That your destiny is really you and Christ, and that's it. And there's no intermediary, there's no Christ continued in the form of an institution. It's just you and Him. All right? And that's it. Now, obviously, because these Protestants, these Puritans, have one big... In the, one big symbol of, of, of a force that believes that the community, sacraments, community, inst, um, community uh, administered sacraments are absolutely crucial to your ultimate destiny. They have a symbol of this in Rome and the Roman Catholic Church. And for the first hundred years and more of Protestantism, um, it is still questionable about whether this Protestant enterprise is going to survive, 
Rome and Roman things are the only, the only way in which this whole atomist argument comes up. In other words, when you are attacking community and you are attacking the whole idea of being essentially linked with other human beings and institutions for your salvation, Rome and the Roman Catholic Church for a hundred years and more is the only real enemy that you're fighting for survival. So it, it seems, if you do not investigate the message clearly, it seems as though if only you could get Rome and Roman-inspired authorities, communities, um, interferences with you as the individual believer out of the picture, that that's all that counts. With Rome and Roman authority and Roman institutions out of the way, everything would be all right. And then the Christian believer would see what really counts in life. He'd throw himself on Christ's mercy and that would be it. All right? But it is the beginnings of uh, a ripping away of each individual from his home in the church as, uh, as essential for his salvation. You know, for example, Aristotle said this famous phrase, man is a political animal. And what he meant by that, of course, was that man... An individual man is not capable of doing anything for his temporal destiny outside of the polis, the city, the republic, whatever you want to call it. If you try to do that, you're doomed. And of course, a Catholic understood that if you tried to do anything for your individual salvation outside of the whole structure of the mystical body, the mystical polis, if you will, that you were in, incapable of achieving your ultimate salvation. But Protestantism is saying, no, in a way, this whole structure is not necessary. It's you on your own that counts. All right, now, secondly, as a, a consequence of this whole idea of being uh, nothing but a dung heap after original sin, the entire creation and all of its aspects from the standpoint of Calvinists in particular, Luther, Luther was too much of a man of tradition, really. Too much of a conservative, in a way, Luther, to, to take this, this aspect of things seriously. But Calvin, no, and his followers, no. They took the whole idea to its conclusion. And they said, well, look, you know, as far as religion is concerned, certainly, as far as religion is concerned, all of the things of creation are an abomination, that, that the body is totally corrupted. The mind is totally corrupted. Um, the things of the world that appear to you to be beautiful are totally corrupted in all their regard. And once more, they're focusing on religion as the argument of, as, as the problem of, of, of crucial importance. So the way in which this whole thing comes up is chiefly in terms of the use of the mind, the use of the body, the use of beautiful things in religious ceremonies. All right, now it's, it goes beyond that in many places, so that uh, anything, uh, anything uh, enjoyable or beautiful or concerning the body in Puritan or in Calvinist communities uh, becomes suspect and is thrown out of the picture. Um, uh, but it's really with religion that they're chiefly concerned with this whole thing. So what do you do again? You strip the churches bare, you throw out the statues, you rip down the altar, um, you put up a little picnic table, you get everything nice out, you don't use any music at all. Um, Calvin said that the only thing you could really use was a tuning fork as music in a church. And then you can only sing very simple hymns. 
Nothing elaborate, because elaborate gets this idea of somehow beauty in your mind, you know, as you, as you mix together elements that are not immediately obvious, uh, obviously to be put together, and then by sticking them in harmony and melody together, you find that something beautiful is produced. All of this is vanity from uh, the standpoint of Calvin and his followers, because it all presumes you can do something good with creation, and you really can't do anything good with creation. It's there, you have to use it, um, but it's not good in and of itself. Now, by the way, I should, let me just digress here for one moment, because this, is, this has been irritating me for the past month or so. I mentioned it yesterday in another lecture. You know, you know why Governor Cuomo and these people have these problems with abortion? Um, in a, I mean, obviously, we know he has this problem because he wants to get elected and, and he needs this aid here from, um, from the New York Times and other places. But the Protestants are so much of these fideists that it's only faith that counts that they spent a hundred years and more trying to prove that philosophy was of no value in anything that you did. That your mind was so corrupted that philosophy was corrupted too. And as a consequence, they, in a sense, destroyed the whole substructure that Catholics had developed in the Middle Ages uh, to show that there was this reason around you that provided a kind of building block towards the leap off for faith. So that when Protestants tried to prove various things, let's say if a Protestant was going to argue about abortion, a Protestant would believe that all these moral principles are principles that are shoved down on you by faith. Now, when Protestants lose their faith, they have nothing else to fall back on at times. Uh, if they lose their faith, they have no philosophical substructure that you can use as a kind of trampoline to keep you safe and calm as you go through a period of crisis of faith, as Catholics can do. And therefore, as a consequence, if you start questioning your faith and things like abortion come up, if you're in a Protestant country, you often have to say, well, there's no such thing as a natural law. There's no such thing as philosophy. There's no rational arguments for anything. And therefore, this rings a, a bell in American minds. And even Americans who are Catholics, or at least claim to be Catholics, um, if they if they um, cannot think of a, if they don't want to use religious arguments, they then have to leap into nothingness. And they then have to say there is no philosophical argument against abortion or against any other moral thing. It's either faith or nothing, all right, as Protestants are, are, are want to do. Now, I'll come back to that again later on in another context. All right, now, these two things then, this idea of being on your own and then the creation as such being pretty wretched are two consequences of this total depravity notion. Let's move on to a final one in the Puritan experience alone. And that is this. The Puritans came to America. Why did they come to America? They were set up with England. They were having problems in trying to purify this Church of England, so they came here. All right. And in coming here, why did they come here? Well, they indicate that they're going to come here to create a place, the only place, where there is any possibility of worshipping God as God wants to be worshipped. That the places that they're coming, the, the, the Europe that they're coming from is so corrupted, even in areas that call themselves Protestant, like England, it's so corrupted, it's so hopeless, 
there because of, of past memories and the continued influence of Catholicism and um, its, corrupting, um, its corrupting consequences among even those who call themselves uh, Protestants, that you've got to separate yourself physically from it entirely. It's darkness over there and come into the light. And if you want a good indication of this, you just have to read the sermon that the Puritan leader, one of the Puritan preachers, gave in, on the Mayflower um, come just before they're about to land uh, in Massachusetts. He gives this famous sermon there in which he explains what they're going to do there. And he says that we're going to, we're going to build a city on a hill, he said. And it's going to be like the New Jerusalem... And in this city on the hill, we're going to serve as a beacon light for everybody else in all the darkness. Now, there's an irony involved in all of this, because this beacon light is going to be telling everybody else that in the light, in our city of light, we understand that everything is rotten and miserable and corrupt and hopeless and and depraved. But nevertheless, at least it's going to show you the pathway towards the truth and the true worship of God. All right, so that those are the three things there, two of them from Protestantism as a whole. The other one, the peculiar experience of the Puritans that Calvinists in England or in other places would not have had. All right, this is going to be unique in a sense to them. And then finally in this whole regard, just talking about Puritans and Calvinists and Protestants and all the rest, you, because you might be able to say, or if you tried to explain this argument to somebody else, they might say to you, but I don't understand because... The Puritans, they had, again, they had churches or meeting houses. Um, they had um, a lot of things that seemed to um, uh, remind you of, 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 of Christianity in its Catholic form. Um, and they seemed to not take things to the consequences. I, for example, uh, in this pamphlet or in other articles I've written, have tried to indicate. And they'll say, it seems as if they did not take those consequences to the conclusions that you claim. And my argument would simply be in this regard, well, you know, very few people ever really take consequences to their ultimate conclusions, except after a long, long period of time. There, there is a, in history, there's a kind of time lag in history that you think up an idea and it takes hundreds of years before it affects things. You know, um, one of the reasons why we get blamed for so many of the horrors of the early Middle Ages, people gouging eyes out and holding hot coals in hands and witchcraft and magic and all the rest, it's not because we wanted that. It's because these were remnants of the pagan order and they were the German barbarians coming in who acted this way. And even when they called themselves Christian, it took hundreds of years for this to sink in uh, to people what it meant. And then later on, one of the reasons why the liberals and the others get the credit for science and this and that and the other thing is simply because it took hundreds of years for the Christian support for all of these things to make itself felt. And just as the fruits come, Christianity's hold weakens on things. So that these people who pop into the picture, uh, liberals, enlightenment thinkers, all of the rest, they get the credit for producing the science and everything else that it's really only Christianity that gave the framework for. And as soon as they come into the picture in the 17th and 18th century, they start creating another world order that produces what we've got now. You know, they produce what we've got now, but it takes a long time. So that even these Puritans or Calvinists and Protestants, they will not always carry through 
in the 15, 16, 1700s to the ultimate conclusions, what is really there in seed form in their ideas because they're not, they're not yet able to do this. You know, I, I quoted, I, I wrote this article on Protestantism, on this doctrine in Protestantism uh, a, a year ago, and I said in there, I remember a teacher that I had at Drew was telling us that um, the Soviet foreign minister, Maxim Litvinov, in the 1930s, um, when he used to get on an airplane, he used to cross himself. And um, they used to say to him, well, well, why do you do this? It doesn't look right. He says, well, after all, I am a Russian. All right, now, what did he mean? Well, you know, it's hard. You can't just get rid of your entire Russian character to you. Um, there's, others, um, there's others who indicated, you know, what the, you know what the Soviet leadership used to do in the 1920s and 30s for a good time? They, well, you know, they used to gather together and drink ferociously, and they used to sing czarist war songs from the First World War or whatever. Why? Well, you're a human being. And even though you've got these ideas in your head that destroy it, the holdover from the past is very strong. Very, very strong. And it's the same thing with these people. Insofar as they look not to carry out the consequences of what I'm claiming is inbred in their doctrines, insofar as they carry that, it's because they're still, in a sense, Catholics to a certain degree. And it's going to take centuries for them to wipe that out. All right, now... Let's move on, then, to the final part of this whole discussion, and that is, how is it that this Calvinism becomes the, the, the fundament of, or one of the fundaments of Americanism? Well, it becomes this foundation when Puritanism in the United States becomes secularized. All right, and that happens starting already in the 1700s, and then with a fury in the 1800s. All right, and I'd like to make this point in, 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 in just introducing this final part of the lecture, and that is remember that just as there are endless varieties of doing things wrong, there are endless ways in which you can secularize. You can secularize in one fashion in one country and in another fashion in another country. You can secularize a university in one way or in another way. And if you're a Catholic country that secularizes, the way in which you lose your faith and embody that loss of faith in life as a whole is different from the way in which you lose your faith and you embody that loss of faith in life as a whole in a Protestant country. So that the United States, which is heavily Puritan and Protestant in its in its character, the only country, the only major country, I mean, I don't want to slight the Australians or whatever, but um, the only real world power that did not go through an orthodox stage of Christianity um, in, in, in a Christian way, uh, I, I mean, the, uh, the only Christian country that did not go through an orthodox stage, the United States, when it secularizes, secularizes in a Puritan way. Right? And this has drastic consequences for the future. If a country like England secularizes, England went through a thousand years of Catholicism. And the Church of England is heavily influenced by Catholicism, so that therefore it will not be secularized in a fashion that will be really Puritan or Protestant. But the United States is, to a large degree. Now what is that going to mean? Well, again, I could go through endless examples of this, and I'm only going to take one or two examples of it to simply plot it in your mind, because then you can really make the connections for everything else. Let's, for example, take that total depravity doctrine, the idea that human beings are nothing but manure heaps, 
And then it's only by faith in, in God, faith in Christ, that they're going to in any sense be saved. Let's just take that for a moment. I said in a sense that that atomized things. It made the picture you and God. You and God alone without the intermediary of everything else. Well, you know, one thing that can happen with this whole thing, of course, is just as it's very difficult to discern whether a spirit that you think you've seen is a good spirit or a bad spirit, it's also very difficult to determine if you're left on your own how much is God and how much is you. How much of what you have being taught you is coming from God and how much of it is something that you yourself are attributing to God. And in a sense... The, the whole Protestant framework of things, especially in this rigorous, logical, Calvinist and Puritan way, the whole framework of the things is so, is so depressing in a sense that it becomes tempting. It becomes tempting for people who are subscribe to it to, in a way, constantly decrease constantly decrease the element that comes from the outside, in other words, through scripture or through what you hear being taught around you as being God's message, and much more increase your personal interpretation of the whole thing. And you see, you can see in a sense with Protestantism in this country, Puritanism in this country, that, that it becomes the case that the individual Puritan believers, and especially the, the intellectuals in the 17 and the 1800s, more and more make, drag God who the original Protestants believed was in this totally separate realm, that they dragged God down further and further and further and further into the individual believer. So that faith in God became more and more faith in the individual believer's experience of God and faith in the individual's um, sense of God speaking in him, and then simply faith in the individual himself. Because if what counts is you and God and you start to wipe God out of the picture or merge God with you, then what's gradually going to be happening is that the only thing that's left is faith in you. Because I am me and I am God at one and the same time. And you can see this very, very clearly in people like Emerson, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson, that um, there's this, this tremendous um, tendency uh, to, to, to just merge, merge things um, which lead ultimately, again, to all kinds of consequences for the destruction of, of the whole idea of, 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 well, the human person in ways that I can't really go into here. And there are other ways in which this total depravity doctrine, if it becomes secularized, can, other routes it can take, but it's just, it's just this one I want to focus on for the moment. All right, from you and God, because of the difficulties involved, it can become you and God in one, and then just you. All right, that I, in a sense, am the one who's giving me the laws for determining how to throw the blanket over the manure heap and gain salvation. And in a sense, it becomes then clear that what I have to do is simply figure out what I have to do to unleash in me all of the powers and potentials and, 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 and drives and, um, and inspirations that will make me understand myself and realize myself. Because by simply doing that, I'll then come to know God and have faith in God or me. You know, again, you can, you can combine all these things together quite clearly here. All right, now, 
Let's just move on from that to the next thing for a moment. If I'm going to try to reach this goal, if I'm going to try to reach this goal of, of realizing my potential, clearing up the garbage, in a sense, the, the obstacles within me to learning about myself so that I can then know what it is that I have to have faith in in order to achieve my salvation, what is it that I'm going to have to do? What are these obstacles? Well, remember that I'm talking about people who come out of this Puritan, Calvinist, Protestant background. And these people have already had themselves pushed in this direction of saying that you are an atom on your own. And that what was bad was this interference of this corrupted structure, this institution of the church with its hierarchy, with its authority, with its traditions, with its teachings, all of these external things which, because everything around you is completely corrupted anyway, couldn't do you any good. And, of course, you might say to yourself, in the hundred years or so when I thought that religion was the only thing that counted there, that I was going to focus my attentions on the evil of this institution, and this tradition, and this authority, and these laws, and these sacraments, and these external things. But now I know, in a sense, that there are other obstacles, communities, authorities, traditions, external influences that are there operating on me. And all of these are trying to tell me not to trust myself. They're all telling me not to trust me as an individual. And they're all telling me to put blocks in the path of my drives, my, 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 my um, inspirations, my visions or whatever. And if I'm going to make it to the point of... of, of clearing all the rubbish out of the pathway and understanding God in me and attaining my salvation by faith in me, then I've got to wipe out these other things as well. And then you can start running down the whole list. And in a, in a sense, the history of the 19th century and the 20th century in the United States is running down this whole list. First, you want to get the church out of the way. Then you want to make sure that the state is, is weakened as well. Then you want to make certain that the, that the other institutions in society are weakened. Uh, the family is weakened because the family is itself, again, an imposition on the individual human being who's striving to break free from external, um, external uh, forces which are preventing him from looking inside himself. And you can keep going all the way down the list until you get to the 1960s. Because by the 1960s, it's not just the church community or the state community or the family community or, or for that matter, for that matter, um, as I'll point out later, the idea of a nation as a community as well. Um, but it's also anything else external you can think of. Like, for example, the way I dress. If I dress in a formal way that's a tradition, that's bad. If I use a language that has a gra grammatical structure to it, this is an external imposition on my internal drives and my internal um, uh, inspirations, which is bad. And the reason why we have trouble is because there are these teachers there hitting my fingernails or something if I'm not spelling properly or if I'm not um, diagramming a sentence. And if I only got rid of all that, boy, the inspirations would flow. All right, so we had all those things as well. And all of this, in a sense, is a kind of translation into into um, uh, secular terms of, 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 of the argument that comes down from the Calvinists. 
Now, one final thing in this regard before I get to the, the, the point which will bring the whole picture together, and that is this. What about this whole idea about creation around me um, being awful? Well, you know, um, I've lost my faith in this God. I believe in myself now. Um, I, I've seen in the sense that they were right about these external influences, uh, uh, communities and whatever. I've just carried the argument through to destroying a lot of the other ones so that I'm totally free on my own for my own inspirations and everything that I do to reach my goals. And then what about this idea that creation around me is bad? Well, you know, I can take that out of the religious realm now and I can do two things with it. I can either say to myself, look, it's not just this idea of the mind and the body and beauty in the service of religion, which is, uh, which, is, which is awful because they're all pretty corrupted, but it's in the service of everything. I should, I mean, what good is my mind? What good is reason? What good is all these arguments as far as the state's concerned, as far as the family's concerned, as far as anything is concerned? They're all corrupted, stupid things that get in the way of the individual's inspirations. Um, what about all this stuff about the body? You know, I mean, the body is something which ought not to be treated as though it's special. So therefore, I shouldn't dress it up. I shouldn't take care about the way it appears in public. I shouldn't take care about the way my buildings appear. I shouldn't take care of the way in which anything appears because there's no standards of beauty for the body or for anything else. It's all a trick. So therefore, what do you do? Well, you make everything bland. There's no reason, there's no use of the mind, there's no reason for beauty, there's no worry, you shouldn't worry about ceremonies or traditions or anything like that, because all of that is part and parcel of a world view that says that you can take the things of the world around you and make good use of them. All right, that's no, in, in everything, not just religion, this blandness, this corruption, everything around you extends. So realize that for everything that you do. Or for that matter, there's another possibility that can happen, and this is uh, equally um, uh, tempting for someone coming out of a Puritan tradition, and that's the following. That is, you know, I tell this to my students and they refuse to believe me, but that's because they, either they're not listening or they don't want to know what you're talking about at times, but it's only a Puritan, it's only someone coming out of this tradition who becomes, in a sense, the official spokesman for pornography, sexual abuse, sexual permissiveness, everything that you can think of, because, again, the Catholic presumes that you can steer a pathway through creation. Some things have bad uses. I mean, things have bad uses and good uses. You avoid the bad uses, you go to the good uses. The Puritan says, no, it's all rotten. So some of them either say, avoid it all, or some of them will simply say, there's nothing you can do about it. Even if you indulge in them, it's not going to hurt you one way or the other. Because what counts is simply faith, first in God, and then when you're secularized, in yourself. So I can throw myself, I can free myself from every authority, from grammar, from my family, from the state, from the church. I can act as though I am a law unto myself, and by obeying myself, I, be, I fulfill my destiny, not by obeying of God, that's a lot of malarkey. And not only that, but I can plunge into anything. I can plunge into homosexuality, I can plunge into pornography, I can plunge into anything that I feel like doing. It's not going to have any effect on me, 
Because, after all, it's, it's, all of this stuff is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's silly to even think about finding the good use of this thing. It's all there. It's, it's one or the other, and that's all there is to it. There's no pathway through it. And you find Puritans who are one, on one side of the coin or the other, but they both share, ultimately, the basic argument that, that you, cannot, you cannot identify good and bad uses to things. All right, it's either going to be all okay for me as an individual to satisfy my goal, or it's going to be all bad, one thing or the other. All right, so that you get this double um, strain of things in the United States that comes through secularization in the 1718 and 1900s, that either there is a ripping down of everything as, as though all ceremonies, all traditions, all things that are elaborate are by their very nature bad, so that, so that there's this kind of sense that many Americans have that if you're simple, if, 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 if you just do simple things, that that's the only thing that's good. And hence, of course, once Catholics get this in their head, they're going to rip their churches to bits too. Um, or you get this idea that, well, you know, go ahead and do whatever you feel like doing because it can't hurt you one way or the other. All right, now let me just add one final thing to this, which is crucial. Because let's go back to this notion of America being the city on the hill, the home for the saints, the place of light as opposed to the place of darkness. What happens when you lose your faith in God, as a Calvin would have it, and you become secularized in this Puritan way? Well, here's what you've got now. You've got this. You say, look, America is the place of lightness. And the other places are the places of darkness. But why is America the place of lightness and the other places the place of darkness? It's no longer because this is where we worship God as God wants to be worshipped. That, insofar as it still has this notion of Christ, as Calvin did at the center of things, is going to be a dike holding you back from a lot of abuses. But you've lost your faith. You've made God yourself, in a sense, now. America is not going to be a place of lightness because God is worshipped correctly there. America is going to be the place of lightness. Why? Because it's here that we've understood that the individual is, 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 is the, the being that counts for everything. That the individual realizes himself and sets his own goals and achieves his own standards. It's here that we've understood that all authorities and all traditions and all communities are bad, and that insofar as they have a hold on you, um, you are going down the pathway to perdition. You can't realize your full potential. And it's here that we've realized that all the elaborate culture of mind, body, and beauty of Europe and other places is worthless, that it's only the simple that counts, or that we realize that the whole idea of separating good and bad things within the framework of life around us is senseless, so that you just dive in the pool and do whatever it is that, that you as an individual dictate to yourself. So that America becomes the place that is worth, that the place of lightness, the city on the hill, the beacon light, to protect this secularized, atomized, anti-cultural vision of things. And the places that are outside are barren and dark insofar as they have not accepted this message of, of, of atomization and, and the like. Now, let me point out, therefore, this, this, uh, this um, 
terrible consequence of all of this, which as I said at the beginning of this lecture, is bad for religion, bad for patriotism, and bad for concepts of good government as a whole. You see what this does uh, for America. This says, you know, my America, it's not, it's not the land that I ought to love because it gave my, I, I was born here. It provided the framework for me to live. Um, my parents' bones are buried here. Um, people who live outside of it have no right to simply come in and push me around in it. Um, and because I, I, have to, I have to recognize that I gained my life and my subsistence from a certain given limited area, and therefore I owe it a loyalty, and there are people who live next door to me who have to borrow milk and have me take them to the doctor, and therefore there's a, a bond between us that ought not to be shunted aside as though it counted for nothing. It's not that you defend or love America because it's this limited cradle, this limited home the whole meaning of home that evokes warm feelings and senses of responsibilities that counts, it's not that that counts. It's America as a universal principle that counts. America as the teacher of the badness of authority, the badness of tradition, the badness of the created world insofar as it leads you to think that, um, that, um, that there's some good use to it and there's some goodness to ceremonies and the like. It's America in that sense that deserves my loyalty, right? Not in the other sense. Now, let me, just, let me just try to finish this by showing you the consequences of all of this. You know, by the way, one other thing in conjunction with that. Insofar as somebody comes along and tells me that, you know, you do owe loyalty to your country because it's a community and it's a home, and it gave you life, and it gave you a job, and it gave you a language, and it gave you other things. Insofar as people come along and tell me that, you know what I'm going to tell them? Uh-oh, I found another one in these long stream of authorities and communities that are bad. First it was the Roman Catholic Church, then it was the state as such, then it was the family, then it was the laws of grammar. Now, you know what also it is? It's this idea of a nation that's bad too. And I've got to break that down, too. I've got to break that concept out of the way. I've got to get people away from this idea that makes them dare say that there is a force, the nation, that could even ask me justly to give up my life for it. That's bad. That, that's external. That cannot be. Get that out, too. But look at the horrible consequences in this uh, for patriotism, as well as, obviously, obviously for religion, because this, these ideas are not Catholic in their nature, Look at this, look at this, the horrible consequences of this. Either, either I have to say, America is good everywhere. And in a sense, that means the rest of the globe must be America. That America is not limited to the 50 states and its dependencies. America is potentially everywhere. Because America is this principle that can be extended all over. And therefore, I can be a Woodrow Wilson, for example, and say, no place, America is not going to be safe until every place is America. Until every place has got exactly our system and our way of life and everything. You know what that makes us? That makes us, in a sense, like the, like the Soviets. Because we must then break down governments and systems which are not like our own. And then what do you do then? You know what you do then? Look at the problems for patriotism here. <clears throat> what happens if you have a country like South Africa? 
And South Africa says, but we want to do things which are for the self-interest and the good of that limited area that you call the United States of America with 50 states in it. We want to allow you to defend that area by being friendly with you. We say, well, no, that's no good. That's no good. It's better that you have a country that is like what we have in the secularized vision of things, even if that kind of a country will then turn its weapons against this limited area that we call the United States of America. Or you can flip it to another way. Like sometimes the enemies of a Woodrow Wilson did, you can say, you know, everything within our borders is perfect and everything without is darkness. Because that's an image that the Puritans have fixed in our minds to a large degree. And therefore, we presume that if we only have nothing to do with the outside world, then everything within remains pure. Now that's bad. That's bad because, of course, uh, this is not the case. And oftentimes, I think one of the problems we've had is that we have insisted, in a sense, that everything American must be good at the same time when we've wanted to remain Catholics. And therefore, the result of that has been people like Mario Cuomo. Because then we insist that insofar as what we see, um, what, what, what comes down through the secularized Puritan aspect of things, uh, insofar as that conflicts with Catholicism, well, then obviously Catholicism must be wrong and not what is existing within the city on the hill. Or for that matter, and this I think ought to make it clear as well, it is because of this view of things that we have people who will fly to North Vietnam during the Vietnamese War and negotiate with the North Vietnamese. Well, why? Because they'll argue in this way. They'll say, you know, America is not this limited country which wants to protect itself and its legitimate position in the world. America is a universal principle of anti-authoritarianism, just to take one aspect of things. And therefore, you see what's going to happen here? If you think America is not upholding this principle of, let's say, anti-authoritarianism, then you go to whatever country you think is upholding it. And that country becomes America, and not here. So that therefore, in the minds of these people, they are being better Americans than a man who takes up his arms for the defense of his country because the principle of America has flown out of the 50 states and it's gone to Estonia or Lapland or the South Pole or North Vietnam. And therefore you get this bizarre problem in the United States where some Americans claim they are upholding the American ideal by supporting people who are the enemies of the United States. And other Americans, I would say like ourselves, when we are not aware of the problems of this whole idea of Americanism, and we have still this vision of proper patriotism. Well, I was born here. I owe my loyalty to something. I can't just let my country lose out because it's my home. When we try to enter into conflict with this, if we do not realize that this whole notion of America as a universal ideal has been ingrained and taught in many aspects of life, that we find ourselves oftentimes using the same language that these other people do. And therefore, we get baffled that they are betraying the country underneath the same language. We use the same language that they do at times. So then we fight them off, and then we find out that we're repeating arguments 
which in a sense stab ourselves. Now, I only took North Vietnam, I only took that example as one example. You can take endless examples. I think at times, for example, that um, we see the same arguments coming up with people like, um, like um, uh, in, in, in the Republican camp, for example. I'll give you an instance of this at the risk of having carried on too long, but I went to a banquet one time when I was working for um, another organization, and I went to this banquet, and it was a banquet of... Um, People who would have supported, let's say, um, well, let's say, let's say the president in the current election. And it was an international group. And there was a representative from Spain there. And they said, let us welcome the representative to Spain. This was for an economic conference. The first time that Spain has become a free country. In other words, under Franco, it was not at all respectable that it only became respectable when it adopted outward forms that were like the United States' forms. All right, and then what have you got? Then you've got a country which is less likely to support the United States as a nation than the other one did when it had institutions which were different from our own. That's the kind of problem that comes up with this whole idea. Now, just to, to put this thing, just to conclude this thing, I want to make it clear once more that this is not the whole picture with Americanism. This secularized Calvinism or Puritanism is not the whole picture. That the way in which this penetrated the United States also is due to this English aspect of American life, which I don't have any time to go into today. And this English aspect of American life is a very subtle thing because the English don't like change. They don't like outward changes in things. And oftentimes the way in which this very radical secularized vision of things that destroys God and man, the distinction between God and man, oftentimes the way in which it had a chance to penetrate the United States was underneath English forms or English forms that made it appear as though nothing was changing. You know, liberal Protestantism, for example, is an English phenomenon because the English don't like to deny outrightly when they become secularized that there's Christianity and God and all the rest. So they subvert it in a sense. So you have all the outward structures, but the language is all different. And in a sense, this contributed to disguising this secularized movement that was going on here in, until it was too late for a lot of people. But that would, would require another lecture to go into. In any case, you ought to be pretty clear about what this Calvinist impact on America has been like. And all you have to do, I guarantee you, is just check the genealogies of your chief radical figures at times in terms of intellectual life in this country. You scratch them, you find that today's um, libertarian uh, was yesterday's, uh, yesterday's grandson of a Presbyterian minister who was the grandson of a rigorous supporter of Calvinist theology who was a disciple of Calvin himself. Uh, you check somebody like this. I saw this Anna Louise Strong. A book came out just about her. She was a vivid, a fervent Chinese a supporter of China. Uh, coming out of the, the New England aristocracy, coming from Harvard, which is itself uh, a, a originally, I think, a Congregationalist school, uh, which goes back to the whole message. It's as though everybody en masse secularized, then leapt into this entire attack on every tradition, every community, every authority, everything that you can think of, and said it was our duty as Americans to join the attack. 
Alright? And it's that that I'm trying to break at with this whole vision of things. Because I, well, for whether liking it or not, I, I'm an American. And I have a duty to this country as well, but I have no duty to this Americanist vision of things. And insofar as we do not make the distinction, we're going to find ourselves marching, uh, marching uh, into a, a butcher shop with the knives to slice our own throats. All right? And we've been given a good pathway to it by people like Geraldine Ferraro and Mario Cuomo, and for that matter, a great number of bishops and theologians in this country as well. Right? I think that's enough.